You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. I'm Calvin, and you're listening to Leading Questions with Calvin Moore. This show is an experiment in civility, gathering people who disagree to sit down face-to-face and having them discuss their disagreements. Do we ever arrive at consensus? Sometimes. What's most important is we've got the conversation started. Well, hey, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Leading Questions with Calvin Moore. I am your host, Calvin Moore. And per usual, I am here with my co-host, Kent Strait. Happy Yom Kippur! I am here with my co-host, Ken Strait and it's Steve Phelps. It's time to atone. I am now only here with my new and only co-host, <laughs> Steve Phelps. What's going on, guy? I'm here to atone. How y'all doing? Uh, I'm, I'm good. How was your week? Good. You know, I, uh, so I've got this. So I've always wanted to learn uh, the Russian language. Okay. And so uh, I've, I've always been, so which is, which always is been what, too lazy to do What is the it. Russian language? Well, I guess uh, Russian. <laughs> Thank you. The, so <laughs> Cyrillic. Well, Cyrillic is the alphabet. Oh, okay. All right. But anyway, so uh, this week I, I went to Babbel because I've seen commercials on it, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to give this a whirl. It says free, so I'm going to give it a whirl. So day one, I learned uh, four words: okay. da, nit, uh, kato, and dam. So what did you say words. about my mom? That's right. I did it. All right, right here which, on the air. Which sounds like it's it's worth all the money you paid because I knew da and yet coming into this. <laughs> well, and, and says, honestly, the most important one is Yenapanamayo, which is, hold up, oh. I don't speak Russian. Okay. <laughs> well, anyway, no, no. Kato is who and uh, dam is, is where. Because yeah. it's, it's, it's getting you ready for like actually being plunged into, if you need to go somewhere, find someone, where is this, who is that, so, that type of stuff. So that was you knew, uh, Of course you knew Dosvedanya. Yes, right? yes. Okay, and I knew yes. da and yet. Too. And I will break you. And I will break, that? right, sure, exactly. Right, you just right. say anything That's like that. just in English, right. Right. But anyway, so I, 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 I got, that was my first day. Tavarish, which that? means comrade. Oh. See, now, I, I know, that, but here's the thing. So I learned day one. Uh, day two, I found out it cost money, so I stopped doing it. But I'm going to get back to it because I am interested in learning the Russian language. Okay. That All is right. Russian. Kent, your week? Uh, mostly uneventful. I, I guess, you know, uh, we can talk about it was just kind of a normal work week until last night when I tested my theory of what happens when Steve and I invite you to a movie. You not only don't accept, you don't answer the text. Did he, did he come over? Yes. No. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's right. Uh, well, the problem is. Oh, yeah. Um, All right. This here's the problem. See okay. what, what had happened <laughs> no, was. No, I have learned that no answer is an answer. And sure. I do apologize. Yeah. My week, my week got away from me. We were celebrating a friend's birthday pretty much from Thursday until uh, until today. No, 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 no. And we so, don't care that you didn't come. Yeah, it's I didn't you even didn't, answer. It's that you didn't, didn't answer. answer. But yeah, but that's fine. That, that was my it's answer. Right. It's, it's totally fine. Well, but were, it could have been that you didn't get the message, and then we're like, oh, did he not get the message? Like, well, it's should we wait? Text again? Should we wait? Should we wait? It's right. now ten forty-five. We, you know, ten <laughs> forty-five. You know, we're waiting. We're waiting. Finally, you know, we just started the movie. All right. Apparently, you've never been uh, like rejected by a girl because no answer is an answer. Oh, that's okay. how that works. Oh. So I'm sorry that I did not come watch Midsummer with you guys. Yes, I apologize. That's okay. Maybe yeah, if that's you right. like play some quality movies, I'll 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 res- I'll even respond. Oh, I don't believe you knew which movie it was going to be when we said we're getting together to watch a movie, right? No, you said. Did we say Midsummer or the house is that October, October built? Yeah. It could have been either way. Neither of which I knew. So I was like, I could have. Well, I, I know we we do this every year to, right. to, to catch the movies that we to missed because no horizons. one knows about them. Oh, okay, gotcha. You right. know, so yeah. so that's why we watch them. Well, okay, maybe next time. Mm, that's fine. Uh, we'll, the, we're gonna throw the respond. we're gonna throw the invite at you, and if you don't respond, right. we know we know the answer. I will at least respond. Right. And then today, 
uh, about two hours ago, the Trump taxes dropped, and so it totally changed my mood. It was, I was just. It was I, doing, yeah, I was reading a New York Times piece. I was doing fine. I get to the end of it. So. And then, uh, and then now I'm doing great. I'm sorry. About it was that. a lot of accounting schlock. Yeah, a lot uh, of accounting. My wife made me watch a uh, movie called The Social Dilemma, which we will be been, doing an episode. Been hearing about a lot that. about that. Absolutely, watch no it idea what it's about. Do, we will be doing an episode about that. Somebody Basically just told me about it yesterday. By social media. Somebody just told um, me about that yesterday. It's, it's fantastic. Some of that will work its way into this episode, interestingly enough. It, but I would do a twofer. Make yeah. sure you watch The Greatest Hack. And the social dilemma because we'll they be they, they very oh. dovetail back and forth. Yeah. Okay. okay, and then um, she also had me watch Minimalist, and it's a documentary about basically purging everything in your house, like um, a Marie Kondo uh, kind of. of uh, not as I guess it's kind of ex- uh, it's more extreme than that. I guess so. They interviewed like tiny house. Does your child bring you joy? So we ended up like <laughs> filling a trash can full of clothes that we haven't worn in years. I'm like. Look, if I put this in bags and like try to donate them, they're just going to sit in the back of my car for like four months before I even get to that box over by Walmart. So let's just get rid of it. Just get rid of it. So, so rather than donating, you just tossed it out? Yeah. Garbage? And, and I know people can judge me for that, but I'm like, hey, look, I could clutter up somebody else's. I could declutter my life and clutter up somebody else's, or I could just landfill that get, bitch. Get rid of this. Gotcha. Okay. Right. So uh, anyway. Landfill that bitch is, de- <laughs> is, <laughs> is debuting on TLC. Just so you know. <laughs> Stream life makeover. <laughs> for for the amount of swearing I have stopped doing on this show, Steve has made up for it. It's sure. fun. I like it. Uh, I think I can get away with a bitch on most television shows. Oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. all radio stations. And all radio well, stations. It's just a matter of Kent. Can you get away with it? Kent. Well, I don't. I, I you know I use it just anyway. Enough. I don't really one care. per show. Let's yeah, okay. continue the series that we're in. So we're yeah. uh, we're still in an election year, obviously. Um, things have uh, changed significantly in the last few weeks. I think last week we talked about uh, civil rights and, and the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her legacy. And now as of Saturday, so yesterday, uh, President Trump has officially uh, nominated Amy Coney Barrett. That, you got them all right. right? All those words are correct. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is, of course, going to lead to a um, a fairly – Partisan battle, but it looks like uh, the Republicans at at the time we were recording have the, have the votes to confirm. Mitt her. Romney came through like we thought he so, would. Um, like so we thought we'll he would. What happens there? Um, I'll leave that to, to you guys to talk about next week. Uh, but this week we are going to be talking about culture wars. I'm not um, positive, by the way, how much we're going to talk about it next week because nothing will have happened. There will have been no hearings and, and no, between mean, now and then. A lot of people don't know about. I mean, hey, you know, when people get nominated to the Supreme Court. I've never heard her name before because I don't follow oh, what okay. happens in the appellate courts. I don't know what her um, her vita, you know, how it reads. So um, next week we can maybe do like a profile. I don't know. Sure. Um, but either way, um, this week we are going to continue our series by looking at uh, at the culture wars. And to that end, we have brought on uh, two people who have been on this series already, Professor Saeed Khan. Um, go ahead and introduce yourself only because I didn't bring uh, the bios tonight, So, and I'm sure you can do a more truncated one than I normally do for you. So uh, tell us a little about yourself, Saeed. Well, the fact that you don't have it memorized, I mean, is, <laughs> is amazing. But, uh, good to be on again. Thanks so much. Um, what do you need to know? Senior lecturer of Near East and Asian Studies and Global Studies, Director of Global Studies at Wayne State University, currently teaching online. All right. How's it going? adapting to that it's 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 not bad and um i i mean you know kudos to the students who've really acclimated to this being the new normal for now um you know some of them can't make the lectures because they had to take on jobs but we make the uh, the lectures available because they're recorded 
and as you probably heard, uh, the presidents of the big three, um, U of M, MSU, and Wayne State, are leaning toward uh, being online uh, until next fall. Right. So they're they're pretty much getting that uh, to us right now to already prepare us, and I think we are prepared for it. So at least there's not going to be any any surprises or uh, unreasonable expectations. I think your big surprise next year in the fall is going to be just how many students are late to class. <laughs> like I got to get up and drive all the way to Detroit. Wait a minute. Pants? <laughs> yeah, I'm wearing pants <laughs> yeah. in class. Yeah, yeah, I, I I I I fully agree with you. I think just like we're seeing. People seem to have forgotten how to drive. Uh, I think there's going to be uh, a bit of a, uh, a relearning curve. Uh, part of it also, I think, just the normal social graces, which have probably uh, gone uh, gone out yeah. the window for some. Everyone's going to have been homeschooled for the last year, so that's going to be interesting. Um, yeah. And then <laughs> they're all going to be socially awkward now. Um, but by then- the way, I am teaching in person with Dr. Huey at Rochester University, so that's kind of an interesting The thing. Rochester the University. The Rochester <laughs> University. You forgot the definitive, <laughs> definite article there. Um, so uh, then also welcoming back to the line, uh, Mr. Josh Lewis, host of the Saving Elephants podcast. Welcome back, Josh. Tell us a little bit uh, about yourself. Great to be back on a – gosh, what is this, my third time? Yep, I think this is my third go at it. Yeah. Uh, good to be back with you guys. I, as you say, host the Saving Elephants podcast, uh, which is a uh, podcast not to save actual elephants but trying to call my party, the Republican Party, back to conservative principles. I spend my evenings reading long, boring books that old dead white guys wrote 200 years ago and try to regurgitate that in language that makes sense for millennials. But that's not my day job. I'm actually a CPA. I work for the state of Oklahoma. We audit uh, not the taxpayers. We're the good guys. We audit governments. Uh, but then kind of live a, a one half by day, one half by night. When you're, how do you feel about actual elephants, though? Would you? Oh, I'm supportive of okay, all right. okay. Yes, it's fine. Yeah. We got so that clear. Okay. Noble, majestic, yeah. surprisingly right. intelligent beast, Josh. Uh, when you say, well, Josh, uh, if you're, you need to take a side, uh, African or Asian? Oh yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I do need to take a side, and I need to look into that to be quite frank. Yeah, Good answer. I'm, Good answer, Josh. It seemed like you were very quick to back off. Not actual elephants. Just yeah. saying, no, no, I don't no, want no, to no, save no, no, them. No. African. Yeah. The we had to. Elephants Well, but well answered in the Asian versus African question as well. Well, I have to study the issue, and I will respond because it deserves. An educated response, very thoughtful response. I, I, and, I, and maybe I'm I'm a little uh, testy in that it's hard to find saving elephants because I'm competing with everyone else out there trying to save actual elephants, which again I'm very supportive. <laughs> I understand, uh, but it was it was something maybe uh, not too. <laughs> maybe kind of nearsighted on my part when I came up with the name. The WWF had the same problem for a while. They did. So they yeah, changed the yeah, name. Yeah, they did. Uh, World Wildlife yeah, Fund. Yeah. yeah. My my show's it's called Leading Questions with Calvin Moore. Not hard to find me if you Google that, but uh, I couldn't get leadingquestions.com because there's a guy who Dave actually knows this that's jackass. not too far from here. Where does he live, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> we could take care of this tonight. We don't tonight. get along, so there's no way I'm getting that domain name. <laughs> so it's just kind of funny. But let, let's jump right into questions. Uh, like I said, uh, tonight we're talking about uh, culture wars, so thank you both for being here. Um, for tonight, our, our working definition uh, for culture war is uh, going to be uh, – it's a pitched battle with a lot of militaristic rhetoric that's uh, about – uh, moral, religious, cultural questions that, that kind of touches on the meaning of uh, what it means to be American, right? It, it can't be just sort of an easygoing disagreement among friends about something. It's not like, hey, do you want pineapples on pizza, which is better, Coke or Pepsi? It's got to have a sense of something really powerful. Uh, what would you add to, to this viewpoint, or, or how would you parse this out? Josh. 
me first. Okay. Well, I, I don't <laughs> yeah. know if I would necessarily add um, in the sense that I would approve upon it. Maybe I would just take where you left off. I think it's correct to say that we use militaristic terms. We do call it the cultural war. And while sometimes I think the conversation is a little too heated, and at least in some groups, we make this out to be maybe more than it actually is. There is an underlying current, which this is very serious, is very important. And you're right. It's not about arguing whether or not pineapples belong on pizzas. It's arguing about which what are do. we fundamentally as a nation. Um, the, uh, the conservative political philosopher, Wilmore Kendall, had identified up to his lifetime four different instances, he said, in U.S. history where there were these sort of he didn't call it a cultural war, but an, an instance in which two different factions couldn't capitulate, couldn't compromise, couldn't even identify each other as worth compromising with, but they wanted to destroy the other side. They wanted to win. Um, of course, the two of them are very familiar to us. The Revolutionary War, uh, the one that's a little more nuanced, the Alien and Sedition Acts, the Civil War, probably the most obvious, and then in his lifetime, McCarthyism, as he kind of defined this notion of whether or not an open society meant all questions were open. Can we actually have freedom of speech? And, and if yes, does that entail um, the ability to foment, say, anarchy or an ideology that would actually be destructive to what we think we are as a people? The reason I'm saying all that is his point was that these were instances in U.S. history where we got really, really mad at each other because they were fundamental to who we believe we are as a people, and they couldn't simply be resolved through some sort of a compromise. And so I, I as I'm sure we'll dig into further tonight, I think there are aspects when the cultural war is, in a sense, a warfare in that in in that sense. Obviously, thank God we're not shooting at each other, right? But there is a kind of sense of we must win, they must lose. It's interesting that that that, that last thing you said uh, there, where hey, you know, um, and sorry if I, I bastardized uh, what you were uh, what you're saying, uh, but in this sense of hey, you know, it it used to kind of it, it was it used to be like this. Culture wars used to be. Um, there was there was dial at least that's what I'm reading a lot on. Hey, culture wars used to be this, and now it's turned into something else. And my thought is just everything you just parsed out. I'm going culture wars have not really been this thing that we need to get back to. Like we we keep hearing, hey, we're we're more divided than ever. We'll talk about that in social media. Maybe that's true, maybe that's not. But I'm seeing at least from you know what I'm seeing in culture and what I'm reading is that. Everyone wants to hearken back to what culture wars used to be. When we actually used to have dialogue about these things, and when I look back at them, I'm going, "There, there wasn't that. There wasn't that." No, and I think that's Calvin. You're you're more the uh, ten times more the historian than I am, but I, I I would assume you would agree with this that the, the history is actually a little messy. I mean, at times, you know, I was, I was thinking of the the one that uh, Wilmore Kindle identified that I thought was a little odd, but I think it's very fitting. The Alien and Sedition Acts. Uh, that was just fundamentally at the heart of who are we as a people. That one actually ended without any, well, very little bloodshed. It, it, we went into an era of good feelings, as they called it. I, I'm sure it wasn't just all peace and love and graffiti, but uh, uh, I, I don't, I don't think you can just draw a straight line whether or not these things are always violent. Are they always going to uh, allow for dialogue and debate? Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And it does seem like we're becoming increasingly more divisive. We don't have to. I mean, I, I hope that we could end up eventually finding some way to resolve this. Um, but it's our history is kind of unwritten, I guess. Yeah, I mean, yeah, history is not clean. It, it very rarely is clean. Uh, if I'm 10 times a historian, you are. Saeed's 10 times a, the historian that I am. Um, but, yeah, history is not clean. It's 100 and, times. Yes, 100 no, times. 10, uh, 10, oh, there we go. We're doing math now? I'm a history major. Don't do that to me. <laughs> um, but, no, uh, let, let's uh, let Saeed uh, jump in on this one. 
Oh, your mic's not working, Said. He's ten times the tech guru you are, though. Lower left-hand side. Is, is that better? There we go. Yeah, there we go. Yes. All right. Yeah, okay, great. Look, I mean, uh, first of all, thank you, but I'm not exactly a historian um, uh, whose forte is Actually, uh, pause, U.S. history. Pause for a sec. You're really hot. Yeah, your, your mic's real hot right now. How's this? I drop it a little bit lower. How's this? Go ahead, go ahead and talk. You know what I'll do is I'll just go ahead and switch back. That's much better. It's better? Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. better. Excellent. Yeah. You're fine. No problem. I just wanted to be like Josh. Um, <laughs> you figure it out next time. Just, you know, just to balance out the elephants. Um, but uh, look, I mean, I'm I'm not I'm not an, a U.S. historian, but um, neither is uh, Calvin. It's fine. But thank you anyway. Uh, look, I mean, there's always been uh, fluidity. There's always been dynamism when it comes to culture, and and certainly American history shows that. I think what really what makes it a war. Uh, is where you get into bouts of who has agency to be uh, involved in shaping the culture of the country. Um, obviously, when the 19th Amendment was uh, was enacted 100 years ago, that was a major cultural shift uh, as it came to uh, women having the right to vote. There were other um, elements when it came to, obviously, the, the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, which followed right after that. I mean, the very idea then that there's going to be a greater sense of enfranchisement for black Americans followed immediately with now the lifting of quotas and restrictions for people from around the world who had, in some cases, been essentially excluded since the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act. So the idea then is who gets to then be uh, a contributor, uh, who then gets to be a stakeholder in shaping the cultural landscape of this country. And it seems right now, uh, at least in one uh, way that the narrative is being forged, uh, there is a real exclusivism uh, as to who gets to decide what America moving forward uh, should be, what it should look like, uh, what it should think and who um, is going to be fully enfranchised, uh, even in the definition of being American. Okay. Uh, Culture wars uh, have always been part of the American fabric, uh, from the Jefferson Wars to anti-Catholicism to Prohibition. Uh, Culture war has always been there and has almost always been uh, informed by religious belief. Uh, What do you believe are the contemporary culture wars? What subjects are completely separate from religion? And then when both of you have addressed this question, I will ask about uh, the Starbucks holiday cup. <laughs> Christmas cup. Come on. Okay. Yeah, For, there, there is. We have a culture war. We're <laughs> right here. Yeah, all right. There we go. Yes. Are we going to have that debate again this year? No. <laughs> Every year. We'll Every see. year. We'll see how it goes. Talk, talk to your people. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to have it. <laughs> this again? <laughs> uh, well... <laughs> Saeed, I'll let you go first. Okay, thank you, Josh. Um, first of all, I, I don't know what um, element of the so-called uh, culture wars do not have religion infused in them in some way. Uh, as far as the various markers that seem to be so uh, prevalent, uh, you've got race, uh, immigration, uh, you've got sexual orientation or uh, sexual identity, uh, you've got uh, gender uh, when it comes to uh, gender rights uh, through reproductive rights. Uh, you've got uh, gun rights. Uh, and then you've got uh, just plain old run-of-the-mill uh, religious issues when it comes to uh, the free exercise of religion and what is uh, the role of 
the infusion of religion and state. Okay, so let me ask a question on that real quick. Um, two of those, to me, two, two of the items that you talked about were are not things that I would necessarily say are... I wouldn't say they're not informed by religion, but I wouldn't say that you need religion to have that conversation whatsoever. Um, that would be around race and gun rights. Now, you might think that God's given you certain rights, and one of those is the Second Amendment. It's fine. Um, but I, I wouldn't say that there's any religion that I can think of that um, is, hey, that says anything about gun rights or uh, about race as we as we understand it here in, in the American context. Um Maybe overlap, but are you saying that they're those are religious as well, or no? I think that they have been made religious. Maybe okay. on their surface, uh, especially gun rights, uh, it's it's kind of uh, difficult for someone who's lived in the United States now for forty five years, who has a father who used to be a member of the NRA, who's an avid hunter. Uh, to go from that, when it comes to hunter safety and a kind of respect for. Uh, for guns to Jesus with an AR-15 in 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 the current meme, riding a Tyrannosaurus uh, Rex. Exactly. Okay. The, with Ronald Reagan. The, so we're clear. The uh, the situation with um, with race, though, I would actually argue, has always been there. Uh, how it has been uh, on both sides of the issue. One, how it has been leveraged to inferiorize uh, people of color. And at the same time, how it has been used um, uh, as, a, as a liberation theology, uh, how it has been used to empower, uh, it, it seems as though it's always in the room. Okay. Josh? Yeah, I'm kind of with Saeed in that I, I have a hard time completely segregating or separating the religious aspect of these things. And, and I, I, Saeed, I agree with your list. Uh, you went through some of the, the key touch points of what we might loosely defined as the culture war these days. Um, I think if, if, when I take a step further back from it, though, and instead of looking at the individual elements, I think an awful lot of what defines our current cultural war is we as a nation are trying to figure out how do we deal with living in a post-Christian America, by which I mean I, I think culturally speaking we have been predominantly Christian. To be clear, I do not mean that most Americans were Christian or held professing Christian beliefs. I meant that that was the major Underline, biblical Christianity being the major underlying worldview that had no true rival in the United States. We were formed, obviously, with a lot of different, say, competing ideas of Christianity. To the extent that we're more secularized or more secularizing um, or less Christian, say, I think we're seeing these ripple effects all over the cultural world. Well, how do we how do we now deal with this? How do we now live in a nation? I think this is the last time I was on, I, I kind of harped about this over and over, 330 some odd million Americans uh, trying to pull us all together in a cohesive culture. What exactly does it mean fundamentally to be an American? And if we're losing some of those cultural and religious moorings we once had, I, I think that's kind of ground zero for where this war begins is, well, how are we now defining ourselves? Now, do you believe the, um, and this, this is for either of you, uh, because you kind of, you had a lot of agreement here. Um, when we say that a lot of these have a lot to do with the religion, um, would you say that they were always that way, or would you say it was jump-started when uh, religion started to have a front seat in American politics in the early 1970s? Or do you think it's been equally back to the, you know, back to 1800, uh, and we're just seeing it more now, or do you believe it really got jump-started in the 70s? 
I would say that religion has uh, looked for a host. And I and please, I mean, let me just go ahead and give the disclaimer. I'm not trying to equate religion with a virus or anything like that. Uh, but from the standpoint that it was perhaps distracted during uh, the 1950s, uh, arguably, as Josh had mentioned with the McCarthy era. The Red Scare uh, prioritized then uh, the Cold War and what was seen as the external menace of the Soviet Union and the need to go ahead and frame, as we always seem to, uh, conflicts as binaries. And so it became very convenient to then go ahead and say, we are the godful compared to the godless. Uh, communists. I mean, this is, after all, uh, the moment in American history where the words under God finally uh, uh, make their way into the Pledge of Allegiance. And yet somehow or the other, uh, there has become a revisionism of history uh, by, uh, by neglect or maybe by, by, by willful omission that uh, the Pledge of Allegiance did have a history before the 1950s in which those words were not invoked. So I think it's important to then realize that as we've moved forward into the 1960s, 1970s, what may have been latent then finds uh, a new uh, uh, ally, a new partner, or a new co-optation. You know, the, uh, the God, godfather of neoconservatism, Irving Kristol, had an interesting observation that I, I think explains part but not all of this. He spoke about how both the Republican and Democratic political parties for many generations had held a uh, attention of they were both religious and secular, by which he meant they were welcoming of those with religious viewpoints or those who had no religious viewpoints or, or a secular viewpoint. And he said around uh, 50s, 60s, the Democratic Party began to morph from secular to secularist, which was it, it attempt to scrub from the public square anything that was tainted with a overtly religious message that the public square didn't necessarily need um, a, a religious overtone. Now, obviously, this is a generalization. It's not true of all Democrats. But we said what was interesting was that he charted as sort of beginning the turn where the Republican Party, in response, wanted to become more a religious vehicle up until, you know, we kind of identify this in the 60s and we get to the, the 80s up through the 90s, a religious right. Um, th- this is not, um, again, I, I'm not trying to say this explains everything, but I think there is a sort of infusing religion maybe more than it actually um, fits the scenario. I, you know, say so you mentioned the in God we trust, and that's kind of a touch point sometimes anytime there's an argument. Uh, under God. Out. Under God. Oh, I'm sorry. Under God. You're, you're, okay, the, you're referring to the But the, the money thing leaders. actually works the same way, I think. It, right. Putting it on the money in well. in uh, both the uh, the national motto or, or in the Pledge of Allegiance, that these are things that I would argue, yes, it's true that that text was not always there, but they've now become sort of a religious um, uh, ground that we're not allowed to concede any, uh, you know, t- to remove it now means something anti-religious almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think there's this kind of sense that as as one, I don't want to just separate this between Democrats and Republicans because it's obviously not that simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as one, uh, the left or the right moves in one direction, it seems like the other side becomes more polarized and becomes almost more militarized with their uh, desire to see religion in the public square. Well, I would I would actually go further than that, uh, Josh, and and contend that these things have become shibboleths uh, for uh, proving whether one is really American or whether someone has some kind of illicit agenda. And and I think it's important to have that kind of intellectual honesty 
because when people are talking about returning to some bygone time, uh, I think it would be fascinating if you said, well, if you want to go back uh, to before the 50s, well, fine, just take the uh, words under God out of the Pledge of Allegiance and see how that rolls with, with, with everyone. Or go back to 1796 and the Treaty um, of Tripoli, uh, where Article 11 says quite explicitly that we are not a Christian nation. Uh, I think today uh, the, uh, the, the reaction to that would be to uh, say it's fake news, uh, but this is part of, of this country's history. And so there's always this danger that if we are going to then build our foundation on, um, on imprecision, on inaccuracy, or just flat out uh, uh, mis, uh, misstatements, uh, that's not a very stable way to move forward. No. Um, so we're going to move on here. Um, Boston University professor uh, Stephen Prothero argues that one effect of the culture wars has been to make political identity the central identity in American public life. And for much of American public life, your central identity has been your religious identity. I don't think that is true anymore. I think that uh, now your central identity is are you a liberal or are you conservative? Are you a Democrat or are you Republican? What's happening with evangelical support for Trump is that they've forgotten how to be evangelicals and they've become Republicans. Uh, what are your thoughts on that sentiment? It's kind of a mouthful there, but I think we have it in front I, of you. I think the first time I was on the show, I uh, I got my evangelical bona fides out there by quoting G.K. Chesterton. Yep. I was wondering uh, so if you'd uh, bring up his name tonight. Yep. Yes. You know, <laughs> put that on my bingo card. Got it? <laughs> yes. Speaking of shibboleths... Uh, <laughs> But uh, Chesterton said, and this is brief, he simply said, the more transcendental your patriotism, the more practical your politics. Uh, there's a larger argument to that. But in a, first of all, I do loosely speaking agree with the statement. I think we're less tied to our religious or cultural identity and more about it being left or right, Republican or Democrat. I don't necessarily think it's as clear cut or as clean as that because I think a um, – Tying one's identity to a political party, I think, is a very lonely, uh, dare I say, pathetic way to tie your identity to, to almost anything. <laughs> um, uh, it's kind of a weird phenomenon these days that we're even seeing dating sites for, say, Trump supporters, that that's sort of the cultural identity that holds them together. You support Donald Trump, too? Well, maybe we should, you know, maybe we should uh, go out on a date. I think this could work. <laughs> yes. Uh But but I, I do take Chester's point, and I, I happen to agree with it, is that when we, when when our identity is not securely rooted in something that's transcendental, something that's beyond, say, a political ideology or program, um, our politics become not only less practical, but quite frankly, more divisive because it all becomes about the, the here and now. Well, well, see, I mean, uh, it's important to remember that Jimmy Carter was actually an evangelical. <laughs> so, so the notion that then uh, evangelical... An actual was, Sunday school teacher. Yep. I'm sorry? As in an actual Sunday school teacher. Still teaches. Yeah, still teaches. yeah, yeah. And so uh, I, I think, and, and especially from somebody who uh, comes from outside, not just the evangelical, but also the Christian tradition, it's it's kind of perplexing to to see uh, what I would argue is, is an internal uh, uh, battle within Christendom in America as far as who holds the mantle for it. And it seems like right now that needle has shifted away from mainline Protestantism toward evangelical Christianity in light of the fact that according to uh, the Pew Center for Religious uh, Life in America, uh, its uh, survey in 2013, for the first time in American history, country is no longer a majority Protestant country. 
It is uh, pretty evenly balanced, 30% Catholic, 30% NONES nuns. Uh, and uh, for those who Are you saying are, the nuns aren't Catholic? That's why NOES. I spelled it for you. <laughs> oh, man. okay. Is the Pope Catholic? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know. Well, let's get let's well, get Michael Voris on the on the line. No. He'd tell you no. Well, well Steve, that depends Niet. on if it's P O P E or P O H P E. Do you remember that? Do you remember that movie, The Pope Must Diet? Anyone? Yes. No. Right. I've no? Heard of it. All right. Go on. I'm sorry. Go on. Continue. So, so I, I mean, when it comes to the notion of political affiliation, I, I think Josh really hit the nail on the head by talking about the kind of identity crisis that's happening for those who believed that this country had an essentialistic identity of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, that is now completely in play as the demographic shift, which will probably happen by uh, within 20 years of America becoming less white, more brown, less Anglo-Saxon, more Latin American, uh, less Protestant and more Catholic, or N-O-N-E-S, nuns. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and as a result of it, uh, you're finding a kind of moral panic that is starting to seep in. And look, America as as a project has always perhaps had this systemic issue. Uh, Unlike other countries that can go ahead and uh, make a pretty strong argument as to what it means to be British, what it means to be French, um, irrespective of how exclusivistic that is. America being a land of immigrants has not been able to peg itself uh, explicitly, formally, uh, by racial, uh, ethnocultural, or religious lines like what we had after Westphalia in Europe. And so now it seems as though it's this moment of reckoning that as the shift is happening, uh, some are trying to uh, rewire uh, the original operating system of America to say, no, we're like every other country, we have that identity. The ones who are calling and clamoring for that are the ones uh, who are afraid of losing that essentialism. I think, um, in, let me get personal here for a second, and this could be a little bit long in the tooth, but just to the point that Prothero was making, um, it's going to be weird for a, a historian to like only stick to like the 90s through now, um, but this really resonated with me in that I literally sat down with a friend of mine, a really good friend of mine, uh, who's a pastor of a very large church in in the uh, southeastern Michigan area, and he said, you know, what's what's your issue right now? Where where are you standing your faith? Uh, what's going on? I said, look, um, I was told this by evangelical Christians. These are the people who basically handed me my faith when I was young. Right? I'm I'm a teenager. I'm making this my own. It's no longer my parents forced me to go to church. I'm going on my own. I want to study this stuff on my own, and so. Uh, I'm told this is what's moral, this is not, this is what's not moral, uh, we need to do this for God. I'm like, all right, fine, cool, I, I believed it. And then we, we've got, uh, what, what's his name, uh, James Dobson, like, in the 90s, Bill Clinton gets caught. Dr. D. Yeah, for, uh, you know. Bill Clinton gets caught uh, getting, a, you know, a blowjob in the Oval Office from, uh, from Monica Lewinsky, and we're told, hey, he is disqualified from the presidency on moral grounds, right? Um... And then you fast forward 20 years, that same guy is saying, well, we're not really voting for a pastor in chief. We were talking about, you know, Donald Trump. And so I saw I started to see the cracks in the armor when we went back to 2012 when it was Obama versus Romney, because I grew up in white evangelicalism being told, hey, Mormonism is a cult. 
It is wrong. They are going to hell. It is an offshoot of Christianity, but it is, it's a cult. I'm like, all right, cool. Hook, line, sinker, going with it. And then 2012 was like, mm, well, is it? Is it? Really? Let's have a dialogue about this. And then and in then, 2013, <laughs> it's a cult. Yes, and then in 2013, after you know he lost, it's a, it's a cult again. And so it started Calvin, see, I think you're discounting how very white Mitt Romney was. Uh, yeah, well, um, what... What I'm getting at here is I started to this, see... By the way, this is the point where the Muslim sits there and says, hold my non-alcoholic beer. But <laughs> Right. Anyway, uh, but then also uh, with, with the... Oh speaking course. of Mormons, in you know when Donald Trump is is running and he, he's, he's speaking... Uh, I'm sorry, no, no, not Donald Trump. Uh, we're talking about the, the mosque, the Ground Zero Mosque, right? Uh, we yep. started to see Muslim, uh, Not Muslims, we started to see Mormons who were classically some of the most persecuted people in the United States, believe it or not, religiously speaking... Um, they did not come to the defense of this mosque being built at not even not at ground like zero. Seven, like, eight was, blocks it was, away. It was, yes. it was two blocks away, right? Two blocks away. Um, I would have thought to see that, but they were falling into this political identity as well, right? Uh, rather than our beliefs, you know, our religious beliefs, we're going to fall in line with this kind of uh, political ideology instead. And so I've really seen this happen in real time over the last several years. And I think that's what Prothero is noticing. I know my, my evidence is anecdotal, but it was really neat to come across this and go, yeah, that's exactly what I'm seeing. I mean, are are you guys seeing this at all? I mean, we've been ambivalent in the last few years about evangelicalism without necessarily leaving it. I guess I left for a little bit, but. Welcome back. Well, yeah, yeah I mean, uh, I mean, yes, of course. It goes but both I... ways. It goes both ways because right now, uh, if you take a look at the Muslim American community, this is a massive uh, debate going on that, uh, especially when we saw this in the primaries, do Muslims back progressive candidates uh, f- who subscribe to certain social uh, policies that would run anathema to particularly conservative or traditional minded Muslims? whether it's uh, alliances with LGBTQ or, or the like, uh, whether this is something that is quote-unquote Islamic. Uh, others say, no, this is a matter of political expediency, and others will even say the whole system is flawed, so just stay out. Um, I, I don't see any religious community that isn't going through those kinds of uh, machinations. Did, okay, speaking, I mean, you're, you're, you're Muslim, uh, you just said that, obviously. Um, in that sense, though, again, the 90s, I didn't hear Muslims being the, mo- the moral majority. It was all – I was staunch evangelicalism. Are these the same conversations? Did you see like a 180 within the Muslim community uh, in terms of we said this in the 90s and now in, in 2020 we're saying this? A lot of Muslim Americans in the 1990s, in the pre-9-11 uh, era, uh, immigrant Muslims by and large were voting Republican. And they were voting Republican uh, for the same reason that evangelicals were voting Republican, uh, because they were socially conservative and also fiscally conservative, uh, low taxes, which some would argue is an article of faith. Uh, And then you had black American Muslims who, by and large, especially coming out of the civil rights struggle and and, uh, America's sordid uh, racial history, they tended to be far more cynical um, and skeptical about the Republican Party. And were voting traditionally Democratic. And it showed a cleavage 
within the American Muslim community. That changed after 9-11 when uh, there was a, sh- a shift after. They all said, see? <laughs> it, the nation exactly said, see? Is what we're talking about? <laughs> and, and the fact that uh, it, it then created uh, not just a few smirks and rolled eyes among uh, black American Muslims saying, well, now you get it. Uh, so that learning curve was, was was certainly there, and it also, I think, signaled this this moment for a lot of uh, uh, a lot of Muslim Americans, especially uh, uh, immigrant Muslims, that the political game uh, has to be now a consideration. And so we find this interesting inversion. Many Black American Muslims are very skeptical about the progressive agenda and would maybe not necessarily vote Republican. Uh, but they're not necessarily w- uh, willing to just reflexively jump on the Democratic bandwagon. Whereas um, among immigrant uh, uh, Muslim Americans, we see it being a matter of either Biden or Bernie. Uh, the Republican um, uh, uh, zeal is is really very low. Okay. Would you say that uh, Trump tapped into some kind of a culture war to win the election last uh, cycle or was his or would you say his draw was something else Josh want this one? Oh, okay I wasn't sure who you were directing that to um tapped into sure I think it may be more apt to describe it as he hijacked almost the mm-hmm. <laughs> um aspects of the cultural war in that the idea that Donald Trump is now the uh the Lord and Savior of evangelical white American communities is just a very, very weird fit in in my view. But but here we are. Um, I, I think he tapped into some of the more baser aspects of the rights idea of what the cultural war looks like, not necessarily um, um, a real rooted, grounded kind of say intellectual understanding of what are we actually trying to do, but almost more of a a defeatist kind of flight ninety three election type. Uh, a view where we're, we're trying to turn the United States of America into, I'm, I don't know if you guys know who I'm referring to or not, but into almost yes. a John McNaughton painting. Uh, the guy that the painter of Trump, I think as he's called, who, who depicts Trump hugging an American flag or crushing the head of a serpent while uh, the Democrats are, are kind of in, in, in the background in this murky, uh, murky darkness in the background. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's uh, self-evident that, that Trump tapped into something. Uh, an awful lot of discontent, and again, what what I would refer to as as a major moral panic uh, when it comes to what is seen as the foreboding uh, arrival of uh, a majority minority America in in twenty years. Uh, I I I had predicted through some of my research that this moment would come. I I didn't think it would come as soon as it did, and I certainly didn't think that Trump would be the um the standard bearer for it what's a, what surprises uh, me the most uh is that it's not so much that he was the standard bearer it's that he was not that person just 10 years previous i think that's what caught me most off guard was not so much that uh they hitched the wagon to a very popular person who was on television for a while he was a businessman and all that other stuff it's that he was not a conservative republican not that long ago so that i think that's what surprised me most that what like what Josh said is that he's now the you know the the, the kind of the you know he's riding the dinosaur he, basically. And I, I Donald would, Trump tweeted thanks and congratulations to his good friend Barack Obama 
on his win in 2012. That's not usually the sort of thing you're looking in a standard bearer four yeah. years later. And I think that's that the fact that he was embraced by the uh, by the Republicans. That's actually what's most surprising to me is not so much that they hitched their wagon to somebody. It's that they embraced him, who had definitely not been in the camp. Not yeah, and, and I think um, just when I was kind of writing this question out, I was just kind of parsing some things. And again, trying to read uh, a number of <clears throat> conservative uh, think pieces and, and conservative uh, books. I just uh, purchased a book uh, by a guy by the name of Noah Rothman, who does not strike me as a fan of Trump. Uh, but he is obviously a Republican. We'll be uh, asking a question from his book on the second half of the show here. Um, but one of the things that, that seems to be uh, the reality of things when we look at, I guess, numbers or whatever, uh, is Trump definitely tapped into baser instincts. He tapped into a culture war in some way, shape, or form. But the things that uh, our side, and, and by our side I mean more the Democratic side, uh, seem to uh, indict him on, and rightfully so, are things that he won in spite of, not because of. And in 2016, I remember I we did the we did an episode the day after Donald Trump got elected, and the room was full of people. Uh, and I think the major narrative, including from myself, was he won because he tapped into this, that, that, and the other. And we're now four years out, and we're looking at the the data around this and it seems that the mass exodus of republican thinkers and and true conservatives who do not support him say he won in spite of the things he did not because those are things that we actually value any thoughts on that because it seems like the republican establishment that does everything else doesn't seem to be behind trump from most of the people that i'm reading the thinking Cal could you clarify for me calvin when you say uh, trump won despite the things he did what what are you referring to okay so i mean a lot of people say oh you know he tapped into 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 racism and, and misogyny uh and uh, you know anti-muslim rhetoric and mm -hmm. he won less of the white vote than mitt romney did in 2012 so the indictment of oh man he really just tapped into white racism and that's why he won is like well he got less votes than romney did so is that really the main thing that he tapped into? Did he win because of that or in spite of that or was it a confluence of a number of things? Well, I mean, it's fair to say it's a confluence of a number of things. But I, I, I take your point, and I, and I am one who believes very strongly that while racism certainly played a, a role, I don't think it would be fair in any way to kind of peg it on that or bigotry or misogyny uh, or things of that nature. I, I know there's a... Jonah Goldberg, the podcaster, talks often about Trump uh, when he was running in 2016. He gave a speech, and I am blanking on the name. You guys might be able to help me out here. It was the it was the gay nightclub where the um, shooting took Pulse. place. Pulse this, is the, uh, yep. this is the down Florida. in uh, Orlando, Orlando, right? Yep. Yes. And and he made some, and I'm, I'm not going to try to quote it directly because I don't remember exactly what it was he said, but he basically alluded to the fact of what a tragedy it was that occurred here, and this crowd of supporters who had gathered there uh, responded very affirmatively that it was a terrible, horrible thing. These homosexuals have been killed. And what's interesting is, is Goldberg talks about he reacts in real time almost with surprise that, wow, my supporters actually um, are upset that homosexuals were murdered. And, 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 what, and, and I think Trump's kind of evolved somewhat since then, but what Goldberg was going on to say was Trump was kind of playing to this caricature of the right is full of bigotry, it's full of misogyny, it's full of these uh, just hateful folks, and that's who he thought his base was. 
Um, I think that that is that certainly explains individuals such as Steve Bannon, who I think is far more true of saying. But I think, uh, Calvin, if I'm understanding you correctly, I think it's true. As time went on, it looks more complex than that. I think these are individuals who um, maybe not predominantly white, but in certain segments of the country that feel that their way of life is eroding. Uh, they 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 have a lot of fear about what the future holds. Uh, as Said, perhaps at a minority majority country. What that means, not necessarily in a sense of race, but in a sense of culture. Well, actually, I mean, I, if I if I can just add to that, Josh, I mean, when it came to what happened at the Pulse nightclub, uh, you know, racism and hatred off, operate on a spectrum. And my take on why Trump's remarks were so receptive uh, to his base had less to do at, at that point, sexual orientation uh, was subsumed into the broader uh, nerve that he was able to strike. And that's about nativism and about religion, because the person who was the murderer was Muslim. And it was framed as though this individual was a foreign um, operator, that he was perhaps part of ISIS or at least ISIS inspired. And so it became this rather uh, uh, surreal experience that, well, I may not be uh, the biggest fan of LGBTQ, but I'm not going to let a foreigner go ahead and do anything to my LGBTQ. So again, it's the gradations of identity politics, which which really then have to be uh, gauged when it comes to the culture wars and what then people are willing to accept. As you rightly said, in that moment, in the aggregate, it then also allows them to have some of the most despicable attitudes when it comes to uh, gay rights, uh, when it comes to gay enfranchisement. Uh, if you were to go ahead and just 10 minutes later ask them a question about uh, whether transgender people should be allowed to use uh, public restrooms, I'm sure that they would go ahead and uh, jump down your throat and f- say no sense of uh, inconsistency, no sense of contradiction, and no sense of irony. So it's, it's, almost, it's almost like you're saying, hey, um, what happened at the Pulse nightclub? Tragedy, receptive, because he tapped into this nativist thing. Uh, it's almost like, hey, um, we don't support gay people, but if anybody's got to kill them, it better not be someone from somewhere right. else. It better be one of our own, is, is essentially the argument. It's it's one of those straight, strange things. It's like, you know, they, they may not be my cup of tea uh, as far as uh, whether I like them or whether I think they're going to hell or heaven or whatever, but they're mine. I think, and that's one of the, the big things b- behind culture wars. It is about territoriality at a time when globalization is starting to erase borders, boundaries. And even when it comes to the notion of where does the line uh, draw between public and private space, this is all, it's kind of a a weird turf war that's being fought on multiple levels and sometimes within the same person. Well, I think that's a a good place for us to take about a 10-minute break. We will be back in 10. And we are back from break. So let's talk specifically about uh, certain culture war issues. I want to talk about uh, sex. I want to talk about free speech. I want to talk about social justice and, and diversity specifically. There's other things we could obviously talk about. At the but... top of the hour when I was making the atone joke, was it too anti-Jewish? I don't feel like it was anti-Jewish. That's been on my mind for an hour. I had already forgotten it. Okay, nope, we're done now. Now we're thinking about it. Now we're thinking about it. Okay. We're getting texts from our Jewish listeners. All right. You're going to atone for it tomorrow. There's always tomorrow. But can they? That's his question. That's what he's getting at. Now it got weird. 
Yeah, that's a little weird. All right, no, so um, well, let's uh, snip the wires again. Yeah, there we go. Uh, so let's uh, let's let's talk about um, uh, the topic of sex here for a second. So liberals and conservatives uh, clash over over the matter of sex, from from gay marriage to, to women's reproductive health. Um, you know, abortion rights versus you know pro life versus uh, you know uh, pro choice, uh, pro choice, yeah. right? Yeah, uh, and um, to transgenderism, we talked about that uh, on the front hour. Uh, what do you believe is at stake? When it comes to these discussions, or what do you believe is it? What do you believe is at stake for conservatives on one side? What do you believe it's at stake uh, for for liberals on the other? Let me ask. Uh, let me ask Josh to to tackle this question first, and I'll tell you why. Because he has quoted both uh, Irving Kristol and uh, G.K. Chesterton tonight, which is probably the most erotic thing that's ever happened on this show. <laughs> Speaking so, of sex, I would like to hear from him on this. Tell me more. <laughs> Well, if if you if you specifically want to hear more of Crystal or Chesterton, I can indulge you. Oh, uh, Irving Crystal himself said of this issue that there is a very fine line between absolute sexual purity. I'm quoting here: a very fine line between absolute sexual purity and sexual promiscuity in human beings, especially if they are bereft of institutional guidance and support, can easily lose their balance. Uh, Crystal, of course, being a conservative, this is this would be an idea I, I echo: is that. Uh, sexuality in a broad sense. I know these are not necessarily the specific issues of transgenderism or, or reproductive rights, but in a very broad sense, um, I, I think part of what is at stake here is what are the consti- what are the institutional um, uh, organizations, what are the cultural norms that can actually speak to what is an acceptable or unacceptable sexual ethic in our culture. Well, since you're quoting people, Josh, I, now you're sort of putting me into a box. So, what do you got, side? In, in the words of the immortal Michael Jackson, "The kid is not my son." Uh, uh, that whole song so, is a that song is a denial of paternity. That's yeah, the funny thing yeah. about Billie Jean. Like, yeah, she just exactly. said, "I'm the one." Yeah, <laughs> the kid's not my son. <laughs> Doesn't even look like uh, me. Yeah. <laughs> so, I was fascinated by the framing of this question because thank you, uh, thank you. But not in a good way. Not in a good way. Okay. But, oh, um, okay. Never mind then. Never mind then. <laughs> no, no offense. <laughs> I, I was I, I mean you you brought three very different concepts under the umbrella of sex. And I, I think in a way you perhaps illustrated the culture war regarding sex. To me, the gay marriage issue, which was decided in 2015 by the Supreme Court in Obergefell versus Hodges, we think, was was an issue of contracts. Uh, the reproductive health issue is one of uh, arguably privacy. Uh, interestingly, as Roe v. Wade had, play, had had placed it, privacy between um, a woman and her doctor, and then you've got transgenderism, which uh, has to do with uh, sexual identity uh, as opposed to gender identity. Right. right? And, and, That's the- so, but the reason why those three are there is uh, we talked about, you know, religious import. You know, people bring their religion to, to these conversations. And again, having grown up in, in evangelicalism, all of these things fall under the rubric of how have we been designed by God, right? So um, gay marriage goes against the natural order uh, of male female relationships, we saw that played out in actual uh, policy that people were voting on in like in California and other places around the United States, trying to add it to their state constitutions or whatnot. Um, but that went back to the religious belief that God has made it for one man, one woman, and this flies in the face of that. Uh, it's not just sure. a policy thing; it's a it's a 
Uh, it's a religious thing. Then we get into women's reproductive health. You do get into the whole promiscuity thing, which is the only thing that I think the G.K. Chesterton quote would actually play well with here, uh, because the the language used around that is, well, women uh, go out and, and they're promiscuous, they have sex with multiple people, and then uh, they can just go get an abortion. And, uh, hey, you know, it's getting away my college career. It's not, hey, uh, I've got like four mouths to feed and, and this is another one coming along, or I was raped or anything like that. It's always promiscuity. Um, and then transgenderism, of course, God has designed them male and female, and so then to change that is to go against um, you know God's design for man and woman. So all of this falls under the rubric of sex for, uh, for from a religious standpoint. I don't know that there's any religious standpoint that I've come across where those three things, the, disparate as they mo- may seem, fall under sexual ethics. Well, actually, I would argue that they don't fall under sexual ethics from a secular or from a religious standpoint. Really? Oh, I mean, right. I, I, from the last time I picked up a Bible, uh, which wasn't that long ago, um, was... That As you teach at a Christian college, I would imagine it wouldn't be that long ago. It was in the way. Caesar what is Caesar and render under God what is God. I feel like and, he's there at the class and he, he opens it up and goes, now, I don't believe any of this. <laughs> now, moving on. <laughs> it wasn't Isaac. <laughs> Continue, sorry. That's, that's, that's actually what we're supposed to do as soon as we get to Saudi Arabia. But... <laughs> My gosh. Continue. App- Sorry. Apparently, apparently, though, at the UAE now, you can say, well, it could have been. Oh, all right. Well, <laughs> all right. That's, 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 that's a bad diplomacy joke. Uh, no, I mean, look, um, I've had this discussion within Islamic circles as well. And when people say, oh, this is so wrong, this is so wrong, I said, in no time in Islamic history did the state actually serve as a party to a marriage. The, the marriage was between two people and really their families. And so the idea that this was a contract with the state really didn't exist. Uh, and similarly here, what we find is that marriage is a contract based on tax laws and, and other things. I mean, we can get into this hackneyed discussion about morality and who gets to police that, but but that'll, that'll take up the rest of the year. Uh, for people to then go ahead and get exercised about this and say it is a quote-unquote religious issue, I think is uh, is a mischaracterization of the issue. Similarly with, with abortion, even when it comes to Catholics, and uh, also on the issue of a public identity that somebody has as far as a form of expression with transgenderism. Now, of course, if somebody wants to vote uh, for a candidate or for a policy uh, that uh, uh, tends to not support these, uh, the legitimacy or the legality of these, they can do so um, for if they find it to be icky. There's nothing wrong with the ick factor being the reason why they pulled a lever in the in the polling booth. But I think to go ahead and then leverage it as a as a religious issue uh, is is uh, I, I think poor form. Not to say that it's not happening, and I think that uh, the culture wars feed off this because it's so damn easy. Uh, the very idea that that abortion has become uh, this this defining single issue for so many, uh, the fact that that gay marriage is in some ways perhaps seen as a defeat, it may not necessarily get overturned, even if ACB is in uh, in the Supreme Court. 
maybe a rechanneling of attention towards something that may be attainable, like uh, uh, overturning Roe v. Wade or putting a, another severe crimp into it. But I think it, it, it does a disservice to go ahead then and to equate religion and culture uh, when it comes to the way that these issues are being both framed and the way that these issues are being challenged. Well, I believe when it's, when it's the other side, we say it's political. But if you're in it, it's your life. And I think that's what the opponents, uh, you know, up to whatever cultural issue we're talking about, don't get. Um, for for non-religious people, for non-Christians, they see abortion as a political issue. When it's Christians look at it as, no, it's we think this is a baby and we don't want it to die. But the other side thinks, no, no, you're just playing politics. Other side, Black Lives Matter. Well, you're just playing politics now. But people who are actually in the movement are saying, this isn't politics, this is our life. And I think we've gotten to the point about winning and losing in politics so much that the opponent always just says you're playing politics either on purpose to redirect, to say you don't really feel that way, you're just trying to win an argument, or because they're actually ignorant that, no, they're not trying to win an argument, they're trying to you know, if it's marriage equality, they're trying to live their lives, and it's not, they're not trying to win an argument, they're just trying to do what they do. And I think on both sides, opponents just look at it as politics or as culture wars. But when you're in it and it's your life, you don't, you just look at it like, this is no, this is what I need to breathe every day. But if you're coming from it, from a, okay, and Saeed, I, I hear what you're saying. I guess the way that I, I saw this actualize is before it even got to the voting booth, the, the culture war could have nothing to do with voting whatsoever. Right. And You're so, absolutely right. So, so, so then it becomes a matter of how much of this do you assert in the civil society space? And so and, and I mean, let me let it, me get if to it, that. If it is a matter of religion, then you could say, OK, for and there's an expression in Arabic saying, well, before you go change something else, tie your own camel first so it doesn't run away. At what point? We have a saying like what, that. We've got laws and specs and things. <laughs> And to what extent do you then go ahead and assert and project your religious values? Do you do it upon yourself? Do you do it upon your family, your congregation, your community? Right. At what point does this then become a compulsion and a coercion? And this is where you get into, you know, statements that, you know, America's not a theocracy. You'll know, keep your religion at home. But I, I think for people who do hold these particular beliefs, hey, you know what? Um, gay marriage is wrong on a moral level. It goes against... Uh, God's mandates for, for, for man and woman and the family and, and yada, 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 and so on and so forth. Uh, I think people who have that deeply held view, I'll tell you, like, like someone who I actually greatly respect, his name's uh, Dr. Timothy Keller. He, uh, he, preaches at, uh, uh, he preaches in Manhattan at a Presbyterian church. I can't remember the name of his church. But very well respected in evangelicalism, deep thinker, um, but believes that there is a design for man and woman. And you read his book, The Meaning of Marriage, and you're like, okay, this actually makes sense, and I, I get no sense of hate or anything. But at the same time, it is preached— and I use that word very specifically, it is preached that something is at stake more than what you're doing in the voting booth. We're talking about the the very fabric of mankind, what we are meant to be. And so the argument is to step into these things, to step into gay marriage, to, to abort a child, to have your gender changed, is to actually unravel the fabric of your humanity, whether you acknowledge that or not. That is what is at bottom for people who hold to these beliefs. And so when you get into the culture war side of things, I feel like we're losing something. Yeah, I feel like we're losing our humanity is the argument that is made by people who hold to this belief. Does that make sense? 
it makes sense. So, uh, oh, okay, let me see. From okay, from an Islamic standpoint, the, on the one hand, first of all, the, uh, abortion has limitations, but it's not completely prohibited. Uh, gay marriage is just simply not recognized. Uh, I, I mean, from the standpoint of trying to wrap your arms around what exactly is being legalized. Is this a, a kind of social contract between two individuals? Uh, there was a case that was decided uh, at least 12 years before um, Obergefell, which legalized uh, sodomy. So if religious people want to be really upset or if they want to have something to complain about, that would have been the case, not, uh, not this one. But the, but the fact is that on the one hand, I could say it is my religious belief, it is my religious duty to go ahead and um, uh, try to proscribe what is not religiously permissible. But there's also this pesky verse in the Quran that says there's no compulsion in religion. So if my motivation of going ahead and stopping somebody from doing something is fueled by my religious beliefs, then I've got this counterweight to say, well, no, you can't force somebody to accept your position or mold it based on religion. That's fair. No, that, that's yeah. absolutely fair. I'm just saying where people but, are coming from. But most, but most religious people wouldn't go ahead and see it that way. They'd say, no, 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 man, you get in there and you better knock it up. Sorry, so bad speak. choice of words. So, so to speak. speak. Yeah. So speak. <laughs> Josh, have you gotten to comment on this yet? I forgot. We, we got long. Yeah, I, I did at the beginning, yes. Okay. Uh, so that, let's move on so we can uh, get to another one. Okay. Uh, regarding free speech, let's talk about free speech, <laughs> which is an interesting wording. By the writer of this question. Let's talk about free speech. Uh, on the one side, you've got uh, those who believe that bad views must be heard in order to be rejected. On the other side, you have those who believe that views... Um, th- that marginalize people, sorry. Thank you. Yes. Okay. View, uh, those who believe that views that marginalize other people are free to be spoken, just not in the public square. So a, a preemptive rejection. Some things are too bad to hear publicly. How does the silencing of ideas, even hateful ones, affect the culture war? Say, we'll let Josh, you, start there. you go ahead. I, I, I was talking quite a bit there. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I kind of said in the intro that I spend my time in the evenings reading long, boring books for people who died years ago. And what's interesting to me about this question is in some sense conservatism or the conservative position has, I don't want to say flipped, but has morphed almost on this question to where today oftentimes we associate the – the people most radically defending the notion of freedom of speech as often being on the right. Uh, there's the David French's his defense of classical liberalism. There's a Charlie Kirk's turning point. I'm not trying to equate these two, but Charlie Kirk's turning point USA uh, or other groups like that on campus um, often demanding their right to freedom of speech, demanding their right for speakers to come no matter how odious, no matter how offensive they might be uh, to some of the uh, uh, more left views on campus. Um, that wasn't necessarily always the case. I, I, I mean, the, the right has had a much more um, tenuous relationship, shall we say, with how many uh, – I think I mentioned this earlier. How many questions are open questions? Uh, what kind of opinions are we uh, – or, or let, me, let me put it this way. that there's, there's a difference between saying we have freedom of speech and that those who have certain opinions, even if they're disagreeable to us, ought to be able to speak them. That's not necessarily the same as saying that all opinions are valid. 
um, or that all opinions need equal toleration or ought to be applauded the same in the public square. And it, you know, I, I was the old phrase, I have a right to my opinion, um, doesn't mean that I don't have a duty to hold opinions that are right. And I, I think that the, the right is, um, it, it, like I said, it, it's almost weird because the right is now defending a classical liberal tradition that is kind of not where it's historically been all these years. I think to a certain degree. Uh, I mean, the right also then falls into some of these hypocrisies and contradictions about whether the Quran can be uttered in public. Uh, so, so it has its own level of selectivity. And I think that when it comes to free speech, look, first of all, I even when there have been issues regarding what are regarded as uh, blasphemy uh, toward the Prophet Muhammad when it comes to the Quran and all, uh, I, I, I do believe in free speech. I think more speech is certainly better than uh, less speech. Salman uh, Rushdie appreciates that. So. Mm. Well, you know, actually, I had a, I had an opportunity to to meet him. Did you? And uh, I told him that I was uh, I I didn't accept the fatwa against him because uh, the Prophet Muhammad himself would not have issued a fatwa. Oh, uh, he was maligned in his own life by many, but he never called for any kind of reprisal. Uh, but I did tell him that if a literary club had issued a fatwa calling for his death because it was a badly written book. I would have signed it in five seconds. <laughs> yeah, I did read uh, uh, Satanic Verses, and it is a, it's a, it's a hall. Yeah, <laughs> it, it yeah. is a hall. To be to be clear, to make sure I understand that, you met an author and told him your book sucks. I mean, uh, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't have done that. I've done it a bunch of times. All right, <laughs> hey, he's heard. Mister Rushdie's heard worse. Okay. Yeah. Did you did you yeah. go to like a book signing, stand in line, and wait to tell him that? No, 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 because I wouldn't have wasted my time. I was <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and I threw a shoe I was, at him. <laughs> uh, I, I was invited to uh, debate him at Albion uh, years ago. So, uh, okay. yeah. That, so that then was... the uh, talking about his book and his mom fell in line oh, with the yeah. debate. So uh, Saeed <laughs> didn't do that debate. I did it, and I was summarily destroyed. <laughs> Just kidding. I didn't. Um, so, 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 so to me, I mean, look, I mean, for, on a personal level, uh, I support academic freedom. Uh, I, I, I truly believe in the idea of the marketplace of ideas. Having said that, though, I am not so naive to believe that it's a level playing field. And I think that the inconsistencies by which this is, um, uh, is leveraged by both sides of the political or ideological aisle is pretty reprehensible. So uh, I'll give you an example, uh, which will probably get me in trouble, but hey, free speech. Uh, You've got, uh, on the one hand, uh, the boycott, divestment, and uh, sanctions movement uh, regarding uh, Palestinian civil society against uh, institutions and sectors um, of Israeli society uh, as a nonviolent protest against the occupation. And on the one hand, you have a lot of activists, even in this country, and a lot of advocates who, who uh, firmly and vehemently support uh, BDS, oftentimes cannibalistically against those who uh, have a different opinion. But it's interesting that when their uh, perspectives are subject to what may be considered a boycott, uh, they are up in arms. Case in point, uh, recently at San Francisco State University, Uh, A few groups were successful in uh, stopping a Palestinian woman from being able to take part in a Zoom session, uh, a webinar. Uh, She herself had been a member of the Popular Front of the Liberation of Palestine and been responsible for at least two plane hijackings uh, back in the 1970s when, you know, plane hijackings were a thing. So 
it then creates this inevitable hypocrisy on one side or the other. Are you for it? Are you not for it? Because if you're going to be for something, you bloody well better be for it in all situations. And similarly, if you're against it for the same reason. So uh, as long as it's done in in a way where the system is not gamed as much as possible, I, I, I would much rather have free speech. This, this as long as it's not threatening violence or a provocation to violence. Yeah, and this is one of those things, and, and we'll move on to the next question here, but uh, just some commentary on that. I think this is where we run into some difficulty even doing uh, this kind of show. One of, one of my favorite things um, that Michigan State University did is Richard Spencer, uh, white supremacist, uh, sued and won uh, to be able to speak on the campus of, of uh, Michigan, Michigan State. State University. And um, they let him speak during spring break when no one was there. And uh, it's an Aggie school, so they've got hundreds of miles worth of land. Uh, and so they put him out in a barn, which is still their property, and let him speak to like four people. And he was pissed, but... He sued for the right and got it, but they, they kind of gamed the system there. Uh, we talk about this kind of thing on our show, like who do we allow on the show? And I do believe that Kent at one point said to me, like, we can't legitimize a view of a white supremacist. We're not going to have a white supremacist sitting across the table and pretend like their view is legitimate. And that's like that tight – we haven't actually had that happen, and nor would we. But it is that tightrope <laughs> – yeah, yeah. It is that, but, you're, but you're under no obligation. You're, you're a private entity. We, we are, yes, but I, I still think – you can be a private entity and believe strongly in freedom of speech, but you still have to walk that tightrope. There's just more legal loopholes you have to jump through and be aware of when you are a public unit, you know, a, a public space. That's all. Um, but let's move on to the next question. <clears throat> on, uh, on social justice and diversity, uh, in his new book, Unjust, Social Justice and the Unmaking of America, Noah Rothman writes, The diversity industry is populated by con artists, some of whom have shifted from advocating diversity solutions to pitching themselves as experts on why diversity solutions so often fail. They have bloated the administrations of already top-heavy organizations such as as large businesses and universities while failing to achieve even their stated objectives. You would think this charlatan would bother social justice enthusiasts. Oddly enough, this parasitic relationship seems to annoy their critics. Now, this is clearly a conservative viewpoint, uh, but from someone who does not support what he calls uh, ident- identitarianism uh, on either the right or the left. Uh, what are your thoughts on his sentiment? Do you think it has merit on the surface or does it need to be challenged? And, and uh, Josh, since it's in your camp, uh, your thoughts on that first. Well, that, that's that's interesting. I thought it might be more in Saeed camp, uh, being that he's in uh, higher education. But I, I will give the shout out that I actually had Noah Rothman on my podcast to talk about this book. He's very conversational. And, and um, you were correct earlier that he's not exactly the uh, Trumpy conservative type. Um, what's interesting about this quote you picked from the book, though, is when I read through it, I just couldn't help but mentally taking out words such as diversity or expert um, substituting them with evangelical pastor, taking out businesses and universities, substituting it with churches. Um, be, because, and I, I don't want to try to make too much of this, but I really think there is a, a parallelism here that, um, yes, I think, the, I think the sentiment is true. It's something I agree with. It may not explain everything. It might just be part of a problem in, a, say, a more highly concentrated segment of society. But I think there's almost a sense in which we've made diversity out to be a, almost a cottage industry. Uh, that some profit by uh, promulgating their particular message or their formulas or their programs and are not necessarily interested in 
diversity for its own sake, but it, it's almost become an echo chamber. Did you, uh, when you were taking out words and substituting them, did you uh, take out identitarianism and substitute that for anything else? And if you did, could you tell us what that other word was? It would be identity politics. Okay. I, okay. <laughs> yeah, that one didn't make it past my spell checker here in, All right, yeah. in the word document. <laughs> Ours is underlined too, I think. No, and, 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 and this is not meant to be a, a takedown of, of Rotten and by by any means. I'll, I'll go back and listen to that episode. I didn't know that he was on your show, so that makes that even better for me. Um, but I, I read through this book in the last week, um, just to prepare myself for this episode, and it felt almost like he was. I mean, he brought facts and figures and data that, and, and used them in a particular way that didn't necessarily resonate with me. Like I saw the other side of how. The numbers and facts and figures and data that he that he listed could be used and, and would be used by people on my side who were smarter and way above my pay grade, um, but it felt like, especially on this particular issue, he was almost dismissive. He would say, "Hey, I agree, racism was a problem. It is it is a problem, continues to be a problem. But here's why I disagree on this, that, and the other, and this is not helping." I'm like, "Okay, well, you're doing just what social justice advocates do, where they say here's a problem, but then it's short on solutions." So he's saying this is not a thing, and then just moving on. That's what I felt the majority of the book did, was saying, I agree that this could be problematic, but is it really? And then just moves on to the next thing that he's, that he's upset about. That, that was my takeaway from, from this book. Clever sophistry, but I felt it was you know, empty rhetoric at the end of the day. But I think that's, that's the whole issue, that on the one hand, I agree with you from, from Rothman's book, I found it to be sort of this pro forma, yeah, 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 okay, I get it, you know, America, race, racial history sorted, yada, yada, yada. But he uses that just sort of as a, sp- a gap filler to get to the bigger point that he's making, which is, but this whole social uh, justice industry is is just way over the top, and it's disproportionate, etc. The irony is that it also cuts the other way, that there is a lot of the social justice uh, industry that is dismissive of strides that are taken, yes. efforts that are made uh, that are outside its orbit of bringing about change. And he, he does make a very strong point about that, which I had to, you know, chew the meat, spit out the bones. Um, yeah. I was talking more about his overall message, which you just alluded to. But yeah, when he makes those strong points, it's like, hey, you know what? I footnoted him like that, or not footnoted, I've got notes. I'm like, hey, that's, that's right on. Something I need to take into consideration, take back to our camp. But overall, I just felt like it was... Well, I mean, I, I think I think this book is in very in, in many ways uh, in a conversation with the book on white privilege, which has become the bestseller, uh, and and the critiques that are brought about it that okay, you are providing a mea culpa as a liberal white woman about how terrible things are, but where is your level of uh, inclusivity of the agency of those people who really are? Uh, on the receiving end of white privilege. Uh, Are you talking about that, Robin D'Angelo's white fragility? Yes. Okay, yeah. all right, all right. And so so the idea then that, again, uh, and, and having gone through this in, in many different incarnations, that it's always interesting when you hear people talking about Muslims and Islam. Uh, the one group that you don't usually see in there are Muslims. So if you watch Bill Maher, either it'll be an apologist, a super apologist, or just somebody who is quite caustic and then you have to wait for Ben Affleck to bail us out. Uh, this is before he was Batman. Uh, so I mean, sort of 
between Geely and Batman. Mm. <laughs> yes, uh, I have seen. Why a... did you say that name, <laughs> Martha? Martha, That's my mom's yeah. name. <laughs> I have seen. There, there has obviously been a big move to. And this isn't anything new, but I've seen. I've just been noticing a lot more. Yeah, it's. it's you find the one person who looks like the other side, but believes what you believe, and like. That's our that's our person now, and you you bring them out for interview after interview, <laughs> like, like Candace Owens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And yeah. it's just it that become like you're, you're your spokesperson now, and it's because it's like, well, I know ninety seven percent of black people believe this, but we've got this guy over here. In uh, 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 dis- important disclosure, Saeed has met Noah Rothman and told him his mom was ugly. <laughs> mm. <laughs> but he writes better than Salman Rushdie. Yeah. <laughs> At least you got no thoughts was involved. No thoughts was. So, so uh, Josh, your your thoughts. I mean, I, I gave some pushback. What are your uh, wait, 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 wait a minute? Was that a joke or something? Have you? No, really no, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's a joke. It's full circle. Full circle. How can you possibly believe a word they're saying, Josh? Especially we have no like, we have no credibility here. We, we pay for our time. Here. Obviously, refueled in those ten in that ten minute break. <laughs> I guess I, I, I'm just sort of getting this image that you spend your weekends uh, hunting down authors. And <laughs> you should know that the, the people who host this show also are on the same network as people who have wrestling shows and shows about yeah. squirrel watching. Saeed so once stabbed Michael Crichton <laughs> years ago. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he's dead now. And now and I'm not going to say he killed him. I'm just saying he stabbed him and now he's dead. You're just saying I put him in a coma. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, God. Anyhow, um, Josh, uh, your thoughts on, on the pushback that I gave. I mean, again, I, I think it was brilliant writing. I just also, also felt it was uh, empty rhetoric. Yeah, th- that might be fair. I mean, in, in, in full disclosure, it has been quite a while since I had the conversation with them okay. since I read the book. So I, I want to be a little careful not trying to um, go toe-to-toe with you on that. Yeah. I, I would say I, I got the sense that while I did resonate with his argument to a stronger degree than the way you're describing it, I also felt like his target audience, um, or, or rather his target, I'll put it that way, his targets were more the intelligentia in the, in the elite classes. I don't know that this would, that some of his critiques would be true of the rank and file, um, that these are, and, and I kind of alluded to that earlier in my response, that this is a problem, but it, it's more, say, highly concentrated in certain um, areas. And I say that, in the, you know, oftentimes conservatives will complain about higher education and some of the shenanigans that go on there. But I have heard it said more than once when you dig below the surface, much of what conservatism in general is complaining about is taking place in very limited elite schools in, in the United States and that the broader scope of all available universities aren't necessarily indicative of, the, of these specific um, uh, character traits. Um, and I, I, think, get, I think that's an important point, Josh, because at Wayne State, we don't have this as as an issue maybe we don't have the luxury for it uh but the issue of diversity and social justice um are managed organically it seems as though these issues become um a petty bourgeois indulgence at the ivy leagues and and other uh schools that are heavily populated with trust fund babies so to speak who either have a sense of guilt or a sense of uh, sort of transferred uh, activism that they want to try to fulfill. Well, who was it this, um, gosh, was it even this week? Maybe it was a couple of weeks ago. The president of the University of Princeton um, 
had been making some comments to the effect, and, and here, here I go again trying to quote someone, and I, and I, well, I probably should have written this let's down. Act, let's, actually, I didn't know let's actually dial back because we do need to move on, unfortunately. So maybe offline oh, okay. we can talk about that a little more. Um, Sounds good. So, I mean, but when, when it comes to, to this topic, when it comes to culture wars, um, more often than not, we can look historically, liberals win. They, they win the culture war. Um, well, in and, that they and, make culture. They dominate culture. Except for maybe on the issue of keeping religious views in the public square. Conservatives mm-hmm. tend, to, t- t- tend to win that one. Um, but when it comes to cultural wars, more often than not, liberals win. But they also tend to lose elections. Uh, as uh, Aaron Sorkin says, why do you lose so goddamn always, right? I can give you the quote. Right? It's going to be your one <laughs> F word per, word, right, per no. show. Um, and then uh, con- conversely, conservatives seem to have capitalized in the culture wars to both raise money and mm-hmm. then to, to win elections. Uh, why, do you, why do you think that is? And Saeed, we'll, we'll throw that to you first. Or, or do but, you guys well, even grant that? Because nobody wants to stand still. And in this day and age, if you're in park, it's as good as being in, uh, moving in reverse. So there is a certain kind of a dynamism that happens with culture, and, and people acclimate to that. Uh, at the same point, I think that progressives also tack to the center eventually, because nobody wants to have change just for the sake of change. So when it comes to this notion about uh, moving culture or um, being a, uh, opposed to culture, I think that the country, as it always has been, is far more in the center on these issues. And they'll go ahead and choose it on an ad hoc basis. Yeah, there's certain things that I can see happening later on. Uh, I don't think that uh, the world will end, but just we may not be right for it and right for it now. Josh? Yeah, I agree. You know, what's interesting is I, I think by and large, if you ask someone on the left or the right, is your side using losing, they would probably both say, yes, my side's losing, or, or at least there seems to be this mindset that no matter which camp you're in, you're losing, you can always see the winner on the other side, or, or they're, they're somehow dominating. Um, maybe I'm oversimplifying, but I think it's because much of the left has captured the elite in, in higher education and media, entertainment, government, maybe a little controversial, but I, w- I would even say uh, large corporations. Uh, mostly beholden to the left, but the predominant population in the United States is still center or center right. Okay. Um, the, Kent, uh, next, uh, number nine. We already kind of did 10, so. Oh, okay. Uh, as we move further away from certain aspects of the culture wars, uh, do you believe those who fought against gay marriage, prohibition, uh, women's rights, etc., uh, eventually accept them, letting those things simply become what it means to be an American? Or do they continue to fight those things uh, as we see with the issue of abortion? I don't see a lot of fighters who are fighting against women's suffrage at this point. Or prohibition. No one wants right. alcohol to be illegal again. Yep. Or like. I don't know. You haven't, you, you're, not, you're not part of the neo-temperance movement? Mm. No, no, not, unfortunately. <laughs> There's still a dry county here and there that probably would be like, you know, we're holding out. Well, they did remake. What did you say, Saeed? I don't, I don't, I can't hear you over the. Is that tequila? The bottle of tequila I'm opening here. Salud. Salud. Um, Josh, did you? Would you like to go first, or? Not necessarily. Go ahead if you if you have. (laughs) Um, you know, to me, to me, I think what's really changed and and both in the United States over the last, uh, I mean, I've been here for 45 years, but uh, maybe more broadly uh, 
for the last hundred years, and certainly this is happening globally, is that civil society is now no longer being arbitrated by the state. Uh, the arbiter of civil society is the corporation. And I think that people need to recognize what a profound shift that is when it comes to uh, corporations even then dictating and determining what is culturally kosher. So when it comes to uh, what Bill O'Reilly used to inveigh against, the fact that he was outraged that uh, uh, people were not uniformly saying uh, Merry Christmas and they were uh, bastardizing it by saying Happy Holidays and, and all. That wasn't some illicit, uh, nefarious movement by a bunch of secularists, atheists, uh, Muslims, Jews, and and others uh, um, who normally occupied the uh, island of misfit toys, but came come out around the Christmas season to rupture everything for crush-loving Christians. Um, this was decided by corporations. They realized that they wanted to go ahead and open up the market. The same reason that Muslims stupidly said. Uh, in Sally Field voice and tone, they like us. They really like us when Best Buy said Happy Ramadan. It's all about the dollar. And so if if people understand then that culture is refracted through corporations uh, and they will decide, for example, if they want to publicize uh, their rather sexually uh, ecumenical, shall we say, uh, policies and, and make that a matter of public record because they think that they can sell more cars or uh, more computers. That's going to happen. That's part of the marketplace. So it's like the Democrats um, wearing dashikis and everything, you know, like pandering mm. to black people, like <laughs> Democrat forever. You know, <laughs> what? Like, I oh, thought they really cared you. when I saw that. Yeah, I was like, wow. <laughs> Gosh. I don't know what's worse, Pelosi and a dashiki or the length of the ties that uh, Trump wears. But anyway, uh, well, uh, somebody's compensating. I uh, <laughs> so I I do have a question that's uh, kind of off script here. And wait, no, um, I'm sorry. Did both of you answer? No, not no. Oh, Josh, Josh, go ahead. Josh, go no, ahead. no. I yeah, and and this is a I mean this is a big question. Say for a conservative, it, it's it's what cultural changes over the long haul do we accept which ones do we fight which ones kind of work into the common vernacular of what we would consider to be okay this is um i i would question what i think can be often the underlying assumption that society is moving in a specific direction or that if it is moving in a direction that that's always a progressive direction um, I think we can regress as a species just as much as we can progress or that in another generation we could say, well, you know, the prior generation was far more mistaken. Um, I, and I also don't think that it's inevitable that changes would take place. Um, you know, I, I don't want to just like pick apart certain issues. It, it's, it, I, I don't think anybody would disagree with the notion that abortion or a pro-life issue appears to have quite a bit deeper roots, that that's not a settled issue. It's not something that a conservatives anytime sooner are willing to just uh, concede that, well, I guess that's been decided and we're going to move on now. Whereas obviously some others are, are seem to be a little bit more comfortable of a fit. I think oftentimes what we see is these things change through generations. Um, you know, uh, people my age and younger have been far more accepting of uh, homosexuality than most older Americans. And, and I, I think that that has had a, a huge shift in kind of the cultural mindset of how we think about some of these issues. And, and I, I think part of what's going on here is some of these things get worked out over uh, the average lifetime. And so it can be hard to notice in the moment what direction we're we actually heading, what things are we holding on to, and what are we letting go of? Yeah, and, and, but I, I think to 
the things that we let go of are are interesting in terms of how they're framed when they are are important. Prohibition. Hey, you know what? This is just I I I run a tour company here in Detroit and I actually do a prohibition tour where we take people around to these speakeasies. <laughs> it's the most great. boring tour. It's an amazing tour. It's Ooh, so much everyone's fun. Everyone's sober. Right? And all of those bars were actually still open during the <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> like, you know we were open during prohibition. We're not closing. Um, but uh, during prohibition, you had the temperance movement. That's, this is destroying families. This is absolutely destroying the American family. And there's a fantastic series about prohibition i can't remember what it is right now but i'll, I'll tell you guys offline uh, when i can remember it um but that was the argument it's, it's destroying <clears throat> families uh people voted against women's rights because it was against the natural order of the family gay marriage is tearing apart the family abortion is destroying families before they can women even start. in the workplace right. are tearing apart um, families but it seems that gay marriage has been hey well we lost that one they got it Prohibition, yeah, well, you know, I go to Meyer, I'm fine. I can walk by the alcohol if I don't want it. Uh, women's rights, I don't have a problem with my wife going to, to vote or, or my daughter getting the right to vote or whatever. Abortion, mm, still a we're – we're not letting that one go. Um, maybe it's because the idea is people die, uh, but people die from alcoholism as well. Um, so I, I, well, I, I don't know. And I, th- I think there's a sense at which I, – I take your point, but – in some sense, these these issues don't actually leave us. What ends up happening is uh, culture itself changes to, um, you know, it's not prohibition, but there is still an open argument about the drug wars, about things that do destroy families. It's it's maybe maybe the things in the past that were either perceived or were in actuality a greater threat. We've found a way to evolve or as a culture change or work around. Um, that's not necessarily the same as saying the right, or I wouldn't even say the right, but it's that a, a more conservative sentiment, say, has conceded the issue, but they no longer perceive it to be the threat that it once was. So a question that I want to ask offline, and I'm sure uh, Dave down here at the end engineering the show might uh, want to pop his, his thoughts in on as well, just because he deals with uh, you know information technology and things like that. I was watching a new documentary called uh, The Social Dilemma, and we will probably do a couple weeks uh, series on, on that once uh, this election series is all over. But... I found it interesting in that they were talking about how um, these social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, um, you know, Reddit, all these different things are engineered in such a way where these companies bring on people who will mine your psychology. And when it comes to the culture wars, my question is, when people are fighting, it's like, how are you not – addressing this the same way I am, we have access to the same information. And when you're watching this documentary, they reveal that, no, you're getting information based on where you're located sometimes. You might type in climate change is, and based on me being in Roseville, Michigan, in Macomb County, uh, it'll say, the first thing in in Google will say, hey, uh, it's a hoax. Whereas you might be in California, and the first search result that comes up in Google is uh, the greatest threat to mankind. Right. And so people aren't actually dealing with the same information when it comes to the culture war. So if you generally bend conservative, the things that you're going to see on your Facebook wall and your Twitter, your Instagram are going to be conservative. Uh, If you were more liberal leaning or left of center, it's going to be more liberal leaning. And so it seems that the culture wars might be being exacerbated by online media content because people – aren't seeing the same things at all. Before having a culture cultural opinion, you have to read three peer-reviewed articles on that subject. Mm-hmm. Can we make that a rule? 
Sure, but what if you're only given peer-reviewed articles that agree well, the with you? Fa- right, but the internet is not peer-reviewed. That's what I'm saying. You, you, when you Google stuff, you don't know who you're going to get. That's what I'm saying. Is that by Googling well, something? Look at this minus.com or plus.edu uh, and I'll get Syed, you were, stuff. you were recently on a podcast that I listened to an episode of uh, where you described uh, the, uh, the internet as a democratization of authority, I believe is the term you used. I think it was Facebook. It was a democratization I, of knowledge. I, I thought you said of authority. It was on a it was on a one you did maybe a month or two ago. I wrote it down. It was it was great. It was a great quote, and I wrote it down. So you said of then authority, I, a democratization of authority. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's go with that. So, so we only we only have five minutes here. So let's uh, let's yeah. if we so, can so dive into that question. One one of the things about culture that we haven't really spoken about today is the culture of um, vetting information uncritically, or the culture of of. Uh, of, of, of silos. Uh, if, if, if the social dilemma is pointing to the fact that there, these algorithms are then directing information to you, I think that we have to really then uh, explore the co- which one's the cause and which one's the effect. Uh, if, if there really is this phenomenon that people are having bespoke information to them, is that because that's where the appetite is? And they realize that this is what's going on. And is, I don't know if that's necessarily legislating it uh, or forcing the issue. That's just because they find that this is what people want to see and read. My fa- my a Google feed is all over the place because they're having, a I think, a little bit of trouble shoehorning me in. <laughs> Josh, your thoughts? Yeah, and, and I, I guess related to that, I would say that these are problems. These are real problems, but they're not... Uh, insurmountable. And I don't know that they're quite frankly all that much different than what humans have mostly dealt with. I know the mechanisms and the tools are different, but we've always dealt with misinformation, with bias, with an inability to think outside of our... Yeah, but the proliferation uh, of information is very different than, like, we're, we're, we're talking about the internet versus the printing press and newspapers and books. The processing power of computers is like a trillion times more than it was 20 years ago. So the dearth no, of information, the access to information is way beyond what it's ever been before, ever. I agree. I guess what I'm saying is that the the propensity for the human to be deceived, to willingly be deceived, that that hasn't changed. The, the mechanisms by which they can have. I, I have a hard time believing that if someone genuinely um, wants to step outside of their silo, they're not going to be able to do so because some corporation is preventing them from getting the, the data or the information they they would want to uh, get if they actually if they actually so chose really, and, and i, th- I think sometimes documentary because it's all about those imperceptible changes people are actually paid to get you to change your opinion without you being conscious of it that's the thing right but i guess what i'm suggesting is that humans have the capacity to tap into a a more virtuous higher uh, more noble um, aspect of themselves to step above these things to realize that this is happening and, and quite frankly all this this talk about the culture war if we're wrapping up i just yeah. i would be remiss to not mention this at all uh the war within us with each individual is in my personal view infinitely more important than the political cultural war we're trying to wage that's ultimately what we're talking about is mm-hmm. the condition of the human heart quick to politics side that was the podcast oh okay excellent <laughs> Man, I thought what he just said was great to end on, and then you just had to throw in with that. I, I remembered. I remembered. I wanted to get. I wanted to get sides. I wanted to get sides. Do I wanted to make sure well, well, that I, okay. well, but, he was. He... But, but it's interesting because Josh actually ends on on um, uh, really almost an Islamic perspective of uh, the 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 struggle for within the, the the struggle of the soul. What is 
known as the Jihad and Nafs. <laughs> wait, that's what it's called, man. This I didn't think it up. Like, wait, okay, like, <laughs> <laughs> that's Jihad a joke, right? <laughs> I was like, that was, that was a joke, right? I'm not, yeah. I'm not having fun at a Muslim's expense, am I? No, that's, no, that's actually Ken's, that's well, Ken's that's category. That's category. Yeah. Yeah. Thing, yeah. All right, well, unfortunately, we are out of time here. Uh, I want to thank both of our guests for, for being here and having such a robust conversation. Always a pleasure having both of you on. Uh, and uh, for those of, our listen- uh, those of you listening, thank you so much for listening to Leading Questions with Calvin Moore. Uh, you can check out all of our episodes from this season and the previous six seasons. Uh, you can uh, send us an email if you want to have us out at your college, university, or organization, you can email us at hello at leadingquestionsnow.com. Make sure you can uh, you can check us out on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, uh, and of course the Detroit uh, Podcast app. Uh, please leave us a review. That's very important. And we will see you next week. <laughs>